Hey, it's Brian, back again for another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. We're just about halfway through September with slightly more than 100 days to go till the big day. Today, we're diving back into our 1918 YA novel, Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. In the last installment, we followed the boys as they found themselves in a daring adventure. Let's see what happens this time around. Remember to listen all the way from the beginning and stay subscribed for a few chapters per episode until the story is complete. We're just about a quarter of the way through the story now. But before we dive in, let me remind you of a couple of things. First, it's never too early to send a Christmas memory to appear in an episode later this season. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspasspodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. This season, perhaps more than any other season before, I want to share your Christmas memories with the Christmas Past family. Even if you've already shared one in the past, please consider sending another. You can talk about a favorite story, a specific memory, or even just the things that you love about the season and what makes it special to you. Again, that's christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And second, I would love to send you an early Christmas card. If you leave a review for Christmas Past on Apple Podcasts, that helps more people discover this show. It's like spreading Christmas cheer. If you do leave a review, reach out to me and let me know a good mailing address to send you a handwritten Christmas card and an official Christmas Past sticker. Okay, I'll come back at the end to say goodbye, but for now, let's continue with the 1918 YA novel Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 8. The Eavesdropper If the two masked highwaymen had been crouching in position for a foot race to be started at the shot of a pistol, they could hardly have sprung forward more suddenly or have sped down the road more rapidly. One glance over their shoulders at what doubtless appeared to them to be something like a regiment of armed men was pouring out of the timber. As one of the boys afterward put it, was enough to make them hot foot along, hot enough to melt all the ice and snow in their path. All of the boys now produced the flashlights, which they had carried in their pockets, and turned them on to their own faces, in order that Mr. Stanlock might see who they were and have no doubt that they were friends. This was according to one detail of their prearranged plan, and it worked successfully. The owner of the automobile recognized his nephew, Clifford Long, and the scout uniforms worn by the boys, and realized at once that he had been rescued from the hands of a pair of unscrupulous rascals by a company of real boy heroes. He threw open the door, sprang out, and began shaking hands of his rescuers in grateful appreciation of what they had done for him. I don't know what all this means, he said, but I've got wits enough to understand there's been some pretty tough rascality on foot and you boys have done me a very great service. We were hiking along this way and saw those two men with guns in their hands stop your machine, exclaimed Clifford, who thought it best not to reveal the discovery of the note in the presence of the chauffeur. You did mighty good work, declared the wealthy mine operator enthusiastically. Does your Boy Scout training teach you to use your head so successfully? One would think that this holdup and the rescue were both plotted and planned some time ahead, judging by the skill with which you worked. Don't flatter us too much, Uncle, or you may tempt us to help along the deception by leading you to believe that we really are a remarkable bunch of boys, Clifford warned slyly. 
I not only believe it, but I know it, replied Mr. Stanlock with stubborn generosity. So if I am deceived, the fault is all my own. But Clifford, I didn't know you were in town. When did you come? You haven't been over to our house yet, have you? No, not yet, Uncle, Clifford answered slowly, and I'm not coming over for a few days. The fact is, we are here on a hunting trip and a mystery mission, and we want you to help us keep our secret. Since we have provided ourselves to be a very unusual lot of boys, perhaps you will take special care to favor us in this respect. We are planning a surprise on the girls, and we don't want you to tell them that we're in town. My lips are sealed until you unseal them, Mr. Stanlock assured them. But where are you staying? All of us are members of one patrol of Scouts of Spring Lake Academy, all except Paul Hunter. We came here on an invitation from Ernie Hunter, and we are living in a cave at the west end of Mr. Hunter's farm. In a cave? Mr. Stanlock exclaimed with some concern. Isn't that rather an unhealthful place for you to live? You don't sleep there, I hope. We certainly do, Uncle, or rather, we're going to, for this is our first night. I wish you could come over and see it. It's as dry and warm as can be. Paul dried it out by keeping a stove burning in it for several days. A stove in a cave, was Mr. Stanlock's astonished comment. That is surely some combination of wild nature and mechanical civilization. I shall certainly inspect your domesticated wild and woolly retreat. When may I be invited to come? Any time, Mr. Stanlock, Ernie interposed with the hospitality of a host. Name your time and we'll be there to receive you. You'll have quite a walk to the cave tonight and the walking isn't very good, I venture. Pile in and I'll take you in the machine. I'm afraid we've got more of a load than you can carry, said Ernie. This machine can carry seven, nine in a pinch, and eleven in a case of life and death, assured Mr. Stanlock. But I've got an idea that will cut off the life and death. I'm bringing home a large sled that a young manual training student made for my seven-year-old son, Harold. It has a good, strong rope attached, and we will hitch it on behind, and two of you boys can ride on that. Let's you and me hitch, said Paul and Jerry eagerly. Jerry was just as eager, and the problem of carrying ten passengers and the chauffeur was settled. One of you boys get in front with Jake and show him the way, suggested the owner of the automobile. Jake! The utterance of that name sent a thrill through every one of the boys, all of whom recognized that it was the name signed to the note that Johnny two times had found near the cave. Ernie climbed up with the driver, the sled was taken out and hitched on behind, and six of the boys piled in with Mr. Stanlock. As soon as Paul and Jerry called out, go ahead, they started. It was not quite as jolly an adventure for the two boys on the sled as they had expected. The road was pretty tough, although the chauffeur, obeying his employer's instructions, drove carefully. The hitchers were thrown off twice. But they refused to give up, declaring it to be the most fun they had had in a coon's age, which was really a boy's bravery fib, and finally the machine drew up within 150 feet of the cave. The boys and Mr. Stanlock left the automobile in charge of the driver and proceeded to the scout's hunting headquarters. The visitor proved that he had not lost all sympathy for his youthful days, for he declared that he would like nothing better than to return to his teens and spend a midwinter vacation with the young hunters in their cave. After the inspection was completed, Clifford again broached the subject of the highwayman's attack, saying, Uncle, we didn't tell you how we happened to be present when those two men stopped you tonight because we didn't want the chauffeur to hear what we had to say. 
The whole story is contained in this note, which one of the boys found after we had seen those men come out of the cave and hurry away. Here it is. Read it. As you are more interested in it than anybody else, you may keep it. Clifford drew the folded paper from his vest pocket and gave it to Mr. Stanlock. The latter held it close to the lamp and read. That's Jake, my driver. It's his handwriting, I'm certain. What did he want to do that for? He must be in league with the worst elements of the strikers. Probably they paid him well for this or promised him a tempting bribe. Mr. Stanlock mused thus aloud as he studied over the note. The situation puzzled him. What ought he to do? Of course, he must have the driver arrested, and there must be an investigation by the police. But would it be safe for him to trust Jake to drive him home? Probably it would be safe enough, for doubtless the driver had no desire to be openly connected with the plot. He was about decided to return home with the driver and say nothing to him about the note when a slight noise at the entrance attracted the attention of all. Listening carefully, they could hear the sounds of retreating footsteps. That's Jake, Mr. Stanlock exclaimed. He overheard us. After him, or he'll run away with the machine. The rush for the entrance threatened to cause some confusion and delay in getting out. Fortunately, however, the delay, if any, was not serious, and the pursuit soon indicated that there were some real sprinters among the boys. As they emerged from the cave, the driver was already within 50 feet of the machine. But he looked back over his shoulder and evidently thought better of his original purpose, for he turned to the left and raced down the hill toward the road at another point, leaping and striding with such recklessness that it seemed almost miraculous that he should escape a fall and serious injury. Mr. Stanlock had no desire to attempt a capture of the traitorous chauffeur by physical force, and when he saw that Jake had given up the idea of fleeing in the automobile, he called the pursuit off. Then he announced his intention to drive the machine home himself, taking the route that led past Mr. Hunter's home. He had no fear of further trouble from the driver or his confederates, for he was certain that Jake was a coward at heart and the two highwaymen could hardly have arrived in the vicinity of the cave on foot since they were driven off in mad haste in the opposite direction, even if they had been disposed to make another attack. Well, good night, boys, he said, taking his place in the driver's seat. You've done me a service tonight, and I won't forget it very soon. Come and see me, all of you, after you have sprung your surprise on the girls. I'll remember to keep your secret, all right? Good night. He put his foot on the starter, gave the steering wheel a few turns, and the throbbing machine moved over the sloping stretch of ground between the cave and the road. The boys, several of them with guns in their hands, followed him to the road and stood there ready to run to his assistance if they should see any evidences of another attack. They continued to watch for 15 or 20 minutes until the lights of the automobile, which pierced through the darkness far ahead, indicated that he had proceeded between one and two miles without interference. Chapter 9. Mr. Stanlock Surprised Perhaps it were better not to attempt to describe with faithfulness of detail the reception given Mr. Stanlock by his wife and family on his return home shortly before 9 o'clock. The fear that something of serious nature had intervened to prevent his appearing at the usual dinner hour had taken firm hold of Mrs. Stanlock, Marion, Sister Catherine, and Brother Harold. The fact that the police had been searching for him for two hours or more and had been unable to make any hopeful report had not tended in the least to relieve the tension of suspense, which became almost unbearable. Then came the vague announcement from Mr. Stanlock's stenographer at the latter's home that he had been called away somewhere but left no definite information. He had been called unexpectedly and left in a hurry. 
That was all the stenographer could say. This information was communicated to the police who increased the family's alarm by asking a string of questions over the telephone, indicating the most direful suspicions. Had Mr. Stanlock seen or heard anything which caused him to believe that the strikers might do bodily harm if they had the opportunity? Had he received any threatening letters? Had he appeared nervous? Or was there anything in his manner which indicated that he was apprehensive of trouble not already well known to the public? Marion and her mother answered some of these questions over the telephone, and half an hour later, a police lieutenant called at the house and made further inquiry. There was no longer any possibility of dodging the most logical suspicions, namely that Mr. Stanlock was the victim of a decoy plotted by some criminal element working with or under the shadow of the coal miner's strike. And so, the relief from this dread suspense was very great when he drove up to the house and walked in smiling as if nothing unusual had happened. Marion fairly flew into her father's arms as if she had not seen him in 16 months. Papa, she cried almost hysterically, where have you been? We've been telephoning all over the city and the police have been searching for you for nearly two hours. Why didn't you call us up and let us know that you were going to be late? I was intending to call you, my dear, replied Mr. Stanlock, as he greeted her and the other members of the family with a rapid succession of hugs and kisses, indicating in spite of his attempts to appear composed that he had returned home not under the most ordinary circumstances. Why didn't you? Marion insisted. Do you know what a state of mind you had us in during the last two or three hours? I delayed calling you because I wanted to find out how late I was going to be, Mr. Stanlock explained, and then something happened. And I wasn't near a telephone, and something more delayed me, and I decided to come directly home without stopping on the way to telephone. What was it that happened, Papa? Marion demanded. Was it anything serious? Pretty serious, girlie, answered her father, pinching her cheek. But your daddy is an awfully brave man, you know, and he can't tell his daughter any of his blood-curdling experiences unless she can listen to the roaring of cannons and the yelling of Indians without flinching. Now, Papa, you're making fun of me, Marion protested. Didn't anything really serious happen? The police thought you must have been waylaid. I see there's no way out of it, and I shall have to tell you girls a story that will make you all scream and dream nightmares filled with revolvers and skulking figures and masked faces and lonely highways. All of the 13 members of the Guardian of Flamingo campfire, Marion's mother, sister, and brother were present at this scene in the big living room of the Stanlock home. Mr. Stanlock covertly watched the faces of his auditors and was pleased to note that his bandying words were rapidly bringing the tension back to normal. Young Master Harold at this point helped his father's purpose along remarkably by piping forth, It's mighty funny if a man can't be out after dark without a lot of women jumping on him. Nobody with a grain of humor in his soul, if that is where the sense of fun is located, could have restrained a laugh at that remark. In a moment, it would have been difficult for any of those present to realize how tragically serious they had all been a few minutes before. After the chorus of laughter subsided, Mr. Stanlock sat down in a large upholstered armchair and remarked to his unconsciously brilliant son, You are a great protector of women-oppressed man, aren't you, Harold? Your chief virtue along this line is your ability to get the philosophical high spots of everyday gossip. But don't stop there, my able young advocate. Do you realize that your father has had no dinner and that this exacting bevy of girls is going to force me to suffer the pangs of hunger until I have told my story? I just told Mary, the head maid, to get your dinner ready, Mrs. Stanlock interposed smilingly. You won't need to go hungry more than 15 minutes longer. 
I see that you don't appreciate an eager and attentive audience, Marion remarked, affecting to be deeply offended in behalf of her guests. Very well, we'll wait until after you have satisfied a mere man's appetite, and then we'll condescend to listen. Oh, I can tell it in 15 minutes while Mary's warming over the meat and potatoes. Now, get ready, all of you young ladies, for the first shock. I was really and truly held up. Held up, exclaimed several of the girls in chorus. Yes, held up, with guns pointed at the chauffeur's head by two masked men on a lonely highway. You're joking, Marion said dubiously. All right, said the mine owner, settling back comfortably in his chair. You insisted on my telling my story, and now that I have begun it, you won't believe my first sentence. Yes, I believe it, Papa, Marion said repentantly, going close to her father's chair and putting her arm around his neck. I believe you were held up by two masked highwaymen with guns in a lonely spot, as you say. But how did you escape? We were rescued by some boys. Although the end of a sentence, Mr. Stanlock stopped so quickly that only a dull person could fail to notice it. His sudden stop, of course, was occasioned by the return to his mind of his promise to keep the secret of the Boy Scouts. Boys, said Mrs. Stanlock wonderingly, I didn't know that we had any heroes of that type in Holly Hill. They were some young fellows out hunting, explained the narrator. They witnessed the holdup and leveled their guns at the rascals and drove them away. Who were the boys, Marion demanded and one might almost have imagined from her manner that she had a half a kingdom to bestow on the rescuers of her father. I'm afraid I can't give you their names, Mr. Stanlock replied slowly. You don't mean to say that you let them get away without finding out who they were, do you? His daughter inquired with just a shade of indignation. No, not exactly that, for I can easily get all their names anytime I want to, but I know also that they did not wish to get into the newspapers in connection with the affair. Can't you tell me who some of them are, Papa? Marion pleaded. I want to know who it was that perhaps saved the life of my father. I can't tell you now, Marion. I have promised faithfully not to reveal their identity at present for very good reasons which they gave me. Where is Jake the driver, Henry? asked Mrs. Stanlock. I see you drove home alone. Jake proved himself to be a scoundrel and a traitor, and when he discovered that I had found him out, he vamoosed. I expect to swear out a warrant for his arrest tomorrow. Shortly before my usual time for coming home, I received a letter by messenger, supposedly from Mr. Mills, chairman of a special hospital committee that is looking after the sick family members of the striking miners. I had been expecting a call of a meeting, and this letter stated that it was important that I be present. He lives out on the Foothill Pike near the quarries. I thought that I would make a quick run out there and call you up from his home and let you know how late I would be. Well, I didn't get there. It seems that Jake was one of the conspirators in a plot to get me out there and waylay me. By the way, that makes me think I ought to call Mills up and find out if he did call a meeting. The notice was on his stationery, and it's just possible that it wasn't a fake. In a few moments, Mr. Stanlock was talking with Mills on the phone. The latter was astonished, declared that he had no idea of calling a meeting that night. Well, it's lucky I kept the notice, the mining president muttered. That'll be something interesting to show the police tomorrow. Well, the drama and the intrigue just keep piling up in this story. I hope you're enjoying it so far, so thanks for listening, and be sure to come back for the next installment in just a few days. Until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earl. 
You can drop me a line anytime just to say hello, let me know how the Burr months are going, or what your plans are for this Christmas season. You can always reach me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't already, because we're celebrating the Burr months and beyond. Until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright.